Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Why Debate. Today, we have a very, very special guest. Of As always, there's myself, Mike Martin, and Callum Roy. But we Hello. have somebody who has been an affiliate for over 16 years. A lot of our listeners are under 16, so that's pretty good. He's actually started in 2007. And by 2016, he was doing $100,000 a month from his email list, which it, when you think about a normal job, most people can't earn that in a year. So it's fucking amazing. He's a best-selling author, The List Building Lifestyle, which we're going to go into today, which awesome. I've read it three times this week. And he's the host of The List Building Lifestyle podcast, which you have to subscribe to. If you're watching this, you need to get your ass over there. It's got loads of cool entrepreneurs on there. It's been going a long time. Absolutely love it. One of the only few podcasts podcast that's in my um list that and alex and mosey and a couple of others um one of the world's most successful he stood there going red now one of the world's most successful solopreneur email marketers okay so you got real big fucking companies are doing billions and billions and billions but there is not many people on the planet that are able to work from home and be as successful as this guy and he's an email marketing genius whose brains we are going to be lucky enough to pick today eagle k fitz welcome my friend Thanks, bro. It's great to be here. Um, I, look, it's uh, sometimes when people read out my bio, it kind of feels like, you know, that's like this big character. But I, I can assure you, I'm really down to earth as normal as, as they come, you know, so happy to share uh, any, you know, any tips and tricks and uh, lessons I learned along the way. Awesome. Well, we invited you on here this week because of List Building Lifestyle by Eagle Kafitz, which is an amazing book on the, it's not necessarily all about email marketing. Oh, we've got the book in the house. Boom, it's there we go. also very much <laughs> about living a, a free life, being free, being able to, it's very, very, very inspirational. I've actually got five additional books ordered that are coming today, all through reading this. I've gone through it three times. I've actually got my Wait there, let me show you. I've got my headphones here that I've been listening to it on this morning. It's like a special MP3 version. Again, it's 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 a brilliant book. It's very, very inspirational. In fact, Callum. Um yes. it made a small change in your life this week as well, didn't it, by reading this book? What what was the Yeah, change? yeah. Well, it it inspired me actually, because I I hadn't really thought about uh email in this in this way before. I'm I'm uh I'm not sure if you know Eagle, but I'm a bit of a, a noob to this kind of stuff. I haven't no idea what's going on with a lot of it and your book was kind of like the first taste for me uh about um email marketing and all of that kind of stuff i teach english uh in the evenings and um actually to ukrainian people funnily enough uh and uh, i bet there's lots of ukrainian people in england now yeah yeah there is a ton but the, these guys are they live in the czech republic actually and uh the um I teach them english in the evenings and um they keep asking me for vocabulary to help expand their vocabulary. And, and, and I was thinking like, Oh, what's the best way to like get these like vocab lists to them? Cause I couldn't find any programs online. And then I read your book and I was like, Oh, I could, I could do like an email thing where I get all these vocab words and I, and I like put them out on a regular basis to my students. And I was like, Oh shit, I could do this to more than just my students. I could like <laughs> make a whole, you know, I could charge people and I could do like uh, an English thing. And I, yeah, in my head, by the end of the, by the end of the book, I was like competing with Duolingo. I was like ready to go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was just some ideas that I had. Um, I thought it'd be pretty cool. Um, no, I think it's a brilliant idea because um, I'm actually in Bulgaria right now. Um, oh, nice. And uh, I'm kind of checking this place out. So naturally, when you're in a new place and you don't know the language, 
you know, I, I kind of geek out on languages. I speak four languages. I speak Hebrew, Ukrainian, Russian, and English. Um, and at some point, I used Duolingo to try and study Italian, but because I didn't really have anyone to practice with, I, I don't think it stuck. But whenever yeah. I go to a new country, I'm always fascinated by all the everyday words that people use. And um, uh, what, what's really funny is that just this past week, I would get on YouTube and I would look for like the 50 most common words in Bulgarian, the 100 most useful words in Bulgarian. So there's like a ton of these influencers who teach Bulgarian. Actually, there's not a ton, but there's a few that sort of re-upload the same video all the time. You know, it's like, oh, let me teach you the, the 50 most useful phrases in Bulgarian. And they just kind of, they read it out, they spell it out, they state it out loud a couple of times, use it in the sentence and move on. You can do the exact same thing with your emails. I mean, you can just mm -hmm. list the most common words, the most useful words. You can break them down by, by category. Okay, use these at the post office, use these at the cafe, use these over breakfast, use these when you're uh, trying to get a cab. So you break them down into categories and every next email you'll be sending out uh, make sure, and this is one of the points I make in the book, make sure to include a pitch because okay. I think a, a key mistake people are making, they try to treat email like their blog where they try to like give a lot of value and post useful content, but they forget that they also want to run a business and make money because if you're not making money, you can really help people uh, because you wouldn't be like, it's kind of like the, the whole situation on the airplane. Put your own oxygen mask first before yeah. you assist anyone else. So you have to look after your own financial interest as well when you're trying to build a business. And, and so uh, people just don't pitch in their emails. So you put out like 10 useful post office words and make sure to pitch the, the full deck, you know. Would you like to get the thousand Bulgarian words that everyone should know or the, the 50 words that make you sound like a native or whatever? You know, get this package and you link to the sales page selling the package. Love it. I'm writing that down. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so really, rather than, painting, rather than painting like a thousand pound an hour, what we've done is we've got him on here. And yeah, we're him. six minutes in and I've already got what I wanted. There's <laughs> some lessons. Boom. So first question. Brilliant. Yeah. So first question, um, this is a pretty obvious one. What inspired you to write The List Building Lifestyle? Obviously, you were already very, you were already doing your thing. You were successful uh, uh, in email marketing so what inspired you to write to write the book yeah I, I definitely didn't write this book to get rich uh, i'll tell you that like you don't really get rich uh from self-publishing a book and i did self-publish mine i never really got approached by penguin publishing or, or anything like that i didn't get an advance of, of you know six-figure advance in the book or anything mm -hmm. um it, it was more about putting out the message because there uh, the way i got into the whole coaching industry uh, before I knew what email marketing was, but I kind of started noticing that people were both online and offline making an impact on other people's lives, is I started uh, with reading The Secret. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar. It's the, the Law of Attraction book. Yeah. Uh, they turned it into a movie, and one night I was browsing uh, you know, some kind of like jokes website or something, and they had an ad for it. So I clicked in, and I watched the movie, and then I read the book, which turned out to be word for word exactly what the, the movie was and vice versa. And then from there, I decided, you know what? Maybe I can change my life because at the time, uh, please forgive me. I, I had an alarm set to not forget that we got a podcast recording. And apparently, <laughs> I didn't turn it off. So you say it 10 minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if I can do this, anyone can do this. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so I, I realized that I could actually change my life because at the time I was overweight, I was single, I was broke, I was still living with my parents, and I really didn't think of myself as somebody who can make an impact on anyone's lives, including my own. Um, and then I got Tony Robbins's Personal Power 2 program. I don't know if you're familiar with that program, but it's probably, in my opinion, the best program he ever produced. Because what he did was he took all the different concepts he's teaching and he put one concept per 30-minute lesson that you listen to and then you got an exercise at the end. And having gone through like the first seven lessons, I didn't even complete the program. I, I was... Not that I was hooked, but I started believing that I can be somebody, I can be something. And I started researching more. I started getting into how do I make money. I read uh, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad, got introduced to the whole concept of network marketing, failed miserably at network marketing, but eventually got into the whole affiliate marketing game, uh, rec recognized that I needed to build a list and kind of, you know, there's the rest of the stories in the book. Um, but I've always dreamed that one day, I, that I wanted to be kind of like Tony Robbins. I wanted to get in front of, you know, people on a stage or something. And, and so um, at some point I had realized that if I wanted to be somebody, if I wanted to get my message out, it wasn't enough just to write the emails. I mean, the emails allowed me to make money. I built my little niche market. You know, I was comfortable in that market. But to really put your message out there to the masses, especially to people who have no, no understanding of internet marketing or affiliate marketing, I had to write a book because I would like go somewhere to a party or whatever. I would meet people and I'd be like, what do you do? And I would say, I'm an affiliate marketer. And then it would send me down to a whole rabbit hole of trying to explain to them what the hell that is. And most of the time they thought I'm some kind of a rocket, you know, scientist or something because they really didn't understand the terms because to them, anything that's inside the computer and is digital, it's almost like voodoo magic. And that's still most people today, which I'm shocked to discover, to be honest with you. Um, and, and so I figured, you know what, what if I wrote a book that would help me get my message out and also explain to people what I do? And um, this is actually my third attempt writing the book. The first attempt, I wrote like 32,000 words, but it was a purely technical guide. It was literally screenshots and go here, sign up to that software, write an email this way, get a product over here. And then I compared it to all the books that I found to be very inspirational and, and impactful uh, throughout the years. And I figured none of these books were actually technical how-to guides. They were all story-based. They yeah. were all kind of following this arc of having the hero develop. They all spoke about the life lessons the author learned rather than the technical guidance that I needed to follow to, to be like the author. So I hired a guy. I hired a guy and I paid him 10 grand and the deal was I'll talk my book out to him. And uh, it took us six months for me to talk it out to him, which probably is more time than it would have taken me if I just sat down and wrote it. And then uh, he took another six months for some reason to turn it into a book, came back and said he doesn't have it because, and I quote, someone broke into his home and stole a hard drive with my book on it. Oh. No way. Yes, That's like I some told him Mission to... Impossible shit. <laughs> no, I told I, I told him he's a joke and uh, yeah, fuck off and and moved on with my life. And then later, maybe a year later, I finally I don't know maybe it was because my friends kept teasing me. So when's the book's coming out or something? So I just went into that coffee shop I talk about in the book, 
and I sat down at the corner table and I just wrote it. Uh, took me, I think it was 12 days to write it. Uh, you can tell it's a short read, so uh, it wasn't long to write. And the rest is history. Got a cover done and then tried to figure out Amazon self-publishing thing. And here we go now, you know, thousands of copies later, uh, it's uh, become a calling card for me. Wicked. Yeah, that's really cool. That's, uh, that's yeah, we, obviously not a lot of uh, the, we have, we've done many self-published books on here before. No clue, mate. Don't pay that much attention to whether they're self-published or not. I think what it is no. is the content that's important. And I yes. totally agree with you. The book, the reason I've read it three times, normally if it was if it was one, like we, we did a strategy book recently and it was all technical bullshit and I just fucking couldn't mm -hmm. finish it. It was dry, it drove me insane to the point where it's like, uh, why are you doing this to us, right? And it's like, it's got good reviews and there's like thousands, but you can see that it's designed for these like, I don't know, MIT geeks sat in a, in a math room nerds, on their sure. own eating nachos and reading this fucking crazy book about statistics and stuff. And it's like, it just didn't do it. Whereas your book, I thought it was super inspirational. Um, yeah. And it was written well. It was written. Um, it was written for people who actually want to be inspired to do something better with their lives from a from home, in my opinion. Um yeah, and I thought the, la the 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 story and the sort of the language that it was told in the story that it was told in was really easy to follow. And for someone like me who had no background in in the you know in, in the actual um, technical aspect of it, I was still able to follow because of the story aspect. So uh, yeah, I thought that was really cool. I bet you this know, has never been um, said. There's this, if you guys, I mean, obviously you guys like books. We do. We love a book. Well, I do. I, I okay, read. Yeah. So, so uh, we, we spoke about. We spoke, you, you mentioned numbers and how numbers can be dry and boring. Now, apologies about my Airbnb connection. It doesn't seem to be holding on very well. Um, but there's a great book about that uh, that I highly recommend you guys read. Um, it's by the same people who wrote Made to Stick, another great book if you haven't checked it out. Um, and they got a book about uh, numbers specifically. Uh, the The main premise of the book is. When scientists and geeks of all kinds present on stage or try to present data, they do it in a dry way, right? They, they say, well, 52 million people died of natural causes last year, and 37 of these people got stung by a bee, and 52 of these people got kicked by an elephant in the chest and their heart exploded, whatever. Like, so they present these numbers in a very dry way. But that book, again, uh, uh, let me... It's not called Switch, is it? Uh, uh, they just they just break down how you send numbers to people in a way that the brain can actually understand. In the, in the way that count. the brain... Yes, yes, making numbers count. Making numbers nice. count. So, amazing book. And what's really cool about this book is that you don't actually have to read it. The way they wrote the book uh, is beautiful because... They do have a backstory for every technique that they sh they're sharing with you. But throughout the book, they have these little boxes where they summarize the rule of how you use the numbers and how you present them. And um, I think, I mean, like for you, for example, you do webinars, right? Um, yep. This will be invaluable because let's say you're doing a, a webinar about how many searches there are for a particular keyword per month. So you can say, well, this particular keyword has 107,000 searches a month. But what you can say is that 
as many people search for this keyword every month as the amount of people that live in, I don't know, in, uh, give me, give me a small town in, in UK, Chesterfield, uh, whatever, way me, like, way me as many way people me. live in Chesterfield. Yeah. So, so as many people as live in, 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 the, in this place, search for the keyword. So now whoever's listening to your webinar be like, oh, there's a whole town of people searching for this. Mm, right. Which the brain takes on a completely different way compared to oh, 107,000 people. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it, it just gives them like a visual, uh, like a, almost like a visual example. That's really smart. That's yeah, so cool. using, yeah. Using... yeah, because the brain is very visual and, and it will study, like the brain perceives everything in pictures and it also has to have a relative uh, connection. Like we were very relative in, in the way we think. Like if you want to learn something new, typically, if you can relate it to something you already know, it's much easier for you to do so. That's why if you know lots of languages, it's easier for you to learn another language because you have lots of reference points that you can grab onto and kind of take and put a pin in and, and drag a little, you know, uh, string to a different idea. So in the same way, we present ideas to people and especially numbers, we have to make it relative to something they can actually understand. Everything is right. relative. That's in, um, have, you, have you ever read um, Predictably Irrational? Yes brilliant book well that kind of does exactly the same thing right i've got the podcast and the paperback version the paperback version's on its way sorry i was rudely in i, I thought anyone recommends a book to me i'm on it straight away and i buy it because it's like I, I i live my life reading trying to educate myself more because i didn't go school and i can't read very good and i can't spell and i'm like i have to just absorb everyone else's um and it's good because do you know if i'd have gone to school and gone to uni and done all that crazy shit that loads of people do i'd have been like I'm done with learning. I've spent the first, however, what feels like first all of my life studying. I don't want to study no more. And whereas I never studied at all, so I feel like, oh shit, I missed out on that. So now I'm yeah. I'm, I'm I'm absorbed um, in in studying. Right, let's 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 push on. How, how, how long have you got, Igor? Uh, we got a good hour and a half, two hours, whatever, whatever you need. Cool. Okay, because we won't awesome. go to the self-published verse thing because you've kind of answered that. But the next question yep. that Callum had was, yeah, I was really interested uh, when I um, heard that um, you were born in Ukraine. I thought that was like kind of obviously there's a the sort of zeitgeist at the moment with with Ukraine, but obviously I, I also like know a few Ukrainians through teaching. So um, yeah, do you have any uh, memories from your childhood there and? Um, yeah, that you'd like to that you'd like to share. Was it was the uh, st was it still in communism when you were growing up? Um, so I was born in 1988, which is okay. right before the wall came down. Yeah, just um, before. And then it took yeah, it took it took Ukraine at least ten years to sort of move on from that vibe of uh, the Soviet vibe. And even today, so I'm in Sofia right now in Bulgaria, and you can still see big like I can still. From, from this Airbnb, I can like see this big block building that looks very similar to the kind of building where I grew up, where yeah. you had like, like it was really wide. It was really tall. It was five stories high. Every floor, you had four apartments and uh, like you could literally get raped. Like if you came into the, into the building late at night, there was no lights, no nothing. People would usually smoke in the building for some reason. And uh, you could either get stabbed, mugged or raped right before getting into your apartment like it was actually a thing 
Um, wow. Talk about memories from my childhood. I mean, there, there's quite a few. I remember being very upset that someone stole my bike, which we used to leave uh, locked using a special chain um, in the in the kind of in the staircase area. So someone stole that. Um, I remember my mom used to warn me a lot about gypsies and uh, uh-huh. whenever there were gypsies going around the neighborhood or something. She would you know, make me go home because uh, she said they steal kids. Now, I'm not sure if this is true or not, whether she gave gypsies a bad rep or anything. But you know, again, uh, here in Sofia, as I walk down the street and I see gypsies, I always like grab both of my kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, um, the same when I was um, living in the Czech Republic. Everyone was just like, oh, gypsies, run. Yeah, gypsies don't, don't really have a good rep. Uh, I don't know, no. uh, for, for some reason. Um, I don't know. Uh, I remember quite a few memories about money. Uh, I remember only criminals had money. Like you, you were either a dirty politician and you were taking bribes from people because back then it was like a lot of barter happening. So if you, if you had a position that allowed you to do anything, any kind of control or power, you would always exchange that for favors. I remember that. And I remember uh, all criminals were rich because criminals drove uh, European cars. If you, if you weren't a criminal and you were just working in a regular day job or you tried to start a business, which is very difficult at the time, um, you never drove uh, European or American cars. That was like a status symbol. If you drove a BMW, you're a drug dealer. Uh, BMW 5 Series, you're a drug dealer. BMW 3 Series, you're a drug dealer's son. Um, I don't think there was, I don't think there was a, a one series back then. If you drove a Mercedes, I remember, so my dad, he actually at some point switched from, uh, serving in the, uh, uh, Soviet army that obviously fell apart, but then the Ukrainian army. So he left and, um, he started like a, like a, like a tire shop. And then uh, he also had like next to it, he built like a little kebab place as well. So one day, and this is a story he told me, I never seen it, but one day, one of the local gangsters came in and he was, uh, my dad was actually friends with him. I'm not sure exactly why the gangster liked my dad that much, but uh, the gangster's name was Nikolai Makarenko. And um, uh, he really liked my dad. Like he would always invite him, you know, for dinner and stuff like that. Like my dad actually knew his family. He would always like run errands for him whenever he needed. And so one time uh, he came to my dad and he said, look, uh, there's not too many people I can trust, so I trust you. And what I need you to do, don't tell anybody, but I need you to take my uh, Mercedes. And I think he had the 600 S600 Mercedes, which at the time, I mean, these are like tanks, right? I mean, these are indestructible. You can probably still see them running around in Albania and Africa and all these countries <laughs> where they just use them as, as Range Rovers. France, they're everywhere in France, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing cars. And um, and he said, I need you to install a shield underneath it to make it bomb proof. Oh my God. Because basically this gangster was afraid that someone's going to plant a bomb under the car. And turns out, turns out the gangster wasn't wrong uh, because my dad did it for him. And I think a couple of years later, uh, someone tried to, uh, to, to blow him up. And this plate, they installed the steel plate beneath the seats and everything actually ended up saving his life he got away with a few burns i think uh but he actually walked away alive from this and so it was the same gangster that my dad borrowed ten thousand dollars from which at the time was a lot of money not the ten thousand dollars today that's ten thousand dollars today is not a lot of money 
Back then it was a lot. And so he got together with a few friends and they invested into something called a kolkhoz. And the kolkhoz is basically a state-owned farm that has cattle, it has crops and everything, tractors and barns. But because the Soviet Union fell apart, everything got privatized. So there, this one guy was actually the CEO. So they wanted to invest in the kolkhoz, help develop it together, and start selling produce. Because my dad was already involved in the food business, right? He started the kebab place. So he was familiar with what you need. He needed the vegetables. He needed the produce. He needed the meat. And so he could see how he can grow his mini empire. And so the other guys obviously were involved in such businesses as well. And um, I think it was a year, year and a half later when they realized nothing, uh, nothing was happening. Um, they discovered that the CEO blew all the money on hookers, casinos. Basically, the money was gone a long time ago. Um, so now my dad was 10000 down uh, with the gangster. He kind of liked him, right? My gangster like my dad, but $10,000 when you borrow from the biggest gangster in town, <clears throat> they can get you in trouble. So we ended up, um, my, you know, him and my mom made the decision to move to Israel. So we wow. sold the apartment. We sold the car. At the time, my dad actually had a U.S. car. He was really, really proud of. We had a Ford Sierra. You went, you went off a second there, then, Igor. You know, when you got to the bit where you said, my dad won't owe 10 grand. And then, and then to this gangster after the guy had spent it all on hookers and drugs. What was the next yeah. bit you said after that? Sorry, because it's a really interesting story. So <laughs> I missed a bit. So um, he owed 10 grand to the gangster. And uh, even though the gangster really liked my dad, when you owe 10 grand to somebody, it makes them stop liking you very quickly. Uh, so, yeah. you know, and the gangster was known to be ruthless as well. Uh, again, like when it comes down to money, there's no joking with this guy. So, huh. so my parents sold the apartment. We had the apartment that my dad earned by serving in the military. That was one of the few ways you could actually get an apartment back then. Um, or you were in line for the government to give you one. Then we sold the car. My dad was really proud of the car. Uh, we, we had it. He would like take really good care of it and everything. It was a station wagon, Ford Sierra diesel. Again, he was extremely proud of that car. Loved it. Sometimes I think he loved it more than me. Uh, and then uh, we sold that was all the apartment. Basically, we ended up having maybe $1,000 or so spare after we paid the gangster, after my dad paid the gangster. And we flew out to Israel where we restarted uh, with the help of my, uh, my mom's parents who were already in Israel. So they helped us out. Ah, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. That moves on to the next question perfectly, though. Yeah, it does. But that is, yeah, that's nuts. Okay, so, yeah, what, what was the biggest culture shock that you experienced when you moved to Israel? It's like you've read the script already. What's going on? You had no time to turn up late. <laughs> yeah. I'm used to doing this with Mike, and we end up, like, going all over the list where I'm like, how do I keep up with this guy? <laughs> no. I, I... Culture shock. Oh, guys. Okay, first off, any of you been to Israel before? No, I'd love to go. I really, it's on my list of places I really want to go. Look, Israel is a very special place, especially if you're switching from Eastern Europe, because Ukraine, it's not exactly Europe. It's more like Russia-like place, mm -hmm. um, but, but it has a certain set of rules and, 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 and protocols and algorithms that you 
performed by that everybody performs by and you know the ukrainians and russians they're pretty good at falling in line at the time you know the soviet union really taught people to walk a very straight line and you know yeah. not not try to rebel it's like the american culture is all about you know rebelling against the system but and making the american dream but uh, that culture is completely completely the opposite now they're becoming more americanized and which is in fact what the whole war is about but other than that um when at the time was the year 2000 june 1st 2000 we landed in tel aviv and so first culture shock is this they take my last name so my parents takes the ukrainian passports right walks up to the desk and they take the passports and they give us the temporary immigrant passport called uh which directly translates as uh the the um the id of a uh i don't know basically someone who's coming coming to their birthright country that's the word ole so okay. anyway yeah, because we were immigrating as, as Jews, because we're all like my parents are 100% Jewish. So we had the ability to move because of that, not uh -huh. for no other reason. So, can anybody who's so, born Jewish move to Israel? Um, no, unless they get married to, you know, a local, um, unless they can prove some kind of connection. For example, okay. my wife, she was born in Russia, but her granddaddy, grand granddaddy was jewish she's not uh, but the grand i think the grandfather was so because of that tiny little connection she was allowed to get in wow so they'll, so they'll basically that's really cool just yeah just prove that you're somehow jewish and they'll let you in that's that's the whole point of the country yeah to to bring the people back into into the promised land and so in they the, take our uh I was going to say in the UK, if you prove you're not English, they'll let you in. But if you've got any sort of English <laughs> about you, they're like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, don't get me started yeah. with that stuff. Uh, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, uh, is it is it same in the UK right now as it is in France and all the other uh, European countries? With the immigrants and the... Uh... I think the politicians are soft as shit. I mean, the, the, the UK has gone soft, mate. It's got to the point like where everyone's bitching and moaning about all this stupid fucking shit. And because they are, they're also allowing anyone, not just from inside the country, from outside the country or anything, to just say, oh, well, that upsets me. And then they change the fucking law to try and cater for it. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's got to the point where, yeah, I think we're going to end up having a war because if we don't, the world's going to be... I mean, the, the country is going to be surrounded by a bunch of pussies. Whereas I think if we had a civil war and it toughened up a lot of people, a lot of people would die. But maybe it'd stop everyone bitching and moaning about the shit that's like, like fucking anyway. It, interestingly, it, no, we, I, no. I think you're right in terms of uh, everyone getting really, really soft. You see that you see it with the with the states. States yep. as uh, I mean, it used to be the greatest country, right? In the last what? 50 years, maybe seven years back, you look back at the U.S., everybody wanted to be like the U.S. But now, I mean, yeah, we, we still want to drink Coca-Cola and, uh, you know, smoke uh, American cigarettes or whatever. But it's not it's not the same United States. In fact, yeah. people leave the United States. There is a ton of entrepreneurs that I know that are flee, fleeing the United States because of how the system is structured, of the kind of laws they're taking on the taxes they're enforcing and what's happening with all the minority movements and, and everything else. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm leaving Canada for the same reason. I mean, my daughter's going to a uh, private Jewish school 
and yet the two novel studies they had this past year, one of them was about a girl named George, a girl that basically decides she wants to be a boy and, uh, you know, or vice versa or something. And the other one was about the LGBTQ community. I mean, why would a, a, a 10 year old girl in fifth grade read novels about that? This is my I mean, problem with it. Nice. I kick off at school. Yeah. I say to the teachers, if you've got anything, where you are going to teach my kids about fucking, oh, you should be gay when you grow up or you should be transsexual when you're, it's like, don't fucking teach him that. He's not even got pubes on his fucking nuts yet. He didn't know about that shit until he's let him become a, a person first. It's like, they don't need to know at that young age, do they? It's, it's, it is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But, I said on here before about like my students feeling like pretty, when I was teaching younger students, like how confused they were about that kind of stuff and how a lot of them confided in me like, oh yeah, I just say that I, I'm, you know, I'm this kind of gender because then people like, you know, I don't have to commit either way. I can just like do my thing and just be a kid. It's like that. Ah, you shouldn't have to do that. Like that's nuts. Um, no, that's really silly. And uh, I think it erodes our society. I think I really agree with what you said, Mike, about people being soft in general. I mean, even I, I see it with my kids, you know, we we have to walk a lot here in, in Sofia because any European city, you actually enjoy the walk and it's easy to get by places. Right. Unlike Canada, where if you don't have a car, you're shit out of luck. You know, yeah. you're staying home. Uh, so public transport is amazing. There's lots of like boulevards and streets. They're just beautiful. Right. And so anytime we walk more than maybe 30 minutes, both my son and my daughter start 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 crying about it, getting really soft. I used to. You know, just to, again, memory from Ukraine, we used to have our water shut down twice a week <laughs> for maintenance, for saving money, whatever. Imagine a big block, like, I mean, at least a few thousand people gets water shut down for a full day twice a week. A full I mean, day. it's a full day, like at least 12 hours at least, but sometimes more because you never really, never really said, you know, it's going to be off at 10 a.m. and on at 10 p.m. They said... Today, the water is going to get shut down. And there was like a piece of paper stuck on the, on the entrance into the building. That's, I mean, they didn't, you, know, you don't know when. Is it 9.02 or is it like 2 p.m.? Like it's, but it's happening. So Just when you got you the need... shampoo in your hair and then they turn the water yeah. off and you're like, oh, not again. <laughs> so you used to, my mom used to take me and we would go together to a pump. Uh, there would be community pumps every now and again. Usually it would be at least a good kilometer uh, right, uh, maybe two kilometers, maybe one and a half kilometers away from your home. So you take a big bucket. Obviously, if you go to the pump, you're not going to go with like a tiny bucket. You're going to go with a big bucket, you know, the kind of bucket that can fit 20 liters. And you go there and you stand in line for three hours because everyone else is going there too. And then, you know, you get to the, to the pump, you pump some water. Obviously, you also, you know, get some in your hand and you drink, you know, while you're pumping so you don't waste the water that you're going to put in the bucket. And then you have to carry the fucking bucket back to your building and then walk. There were no elevators. You walk to the fifth fucking floor carrying that, that shit so, so you and your family can drink, cook, and go to the bathroom. Okay? Wow. Now that, as a kid, really toughens you up real nice. We were just walking down the street here looking for a breakfast place in one of the inner streets. And I saw something that looks kind of like a church or, I don't know, something like that. Maybe, maybe a temple. And I saw something that I've never seen in Canada. And I loved it. It was basically the full family, three generations. Father, uh, maybe the father's mother, you know, obviously grandma or something like that. 
and two kids cleaning, cleaning the entrance into this building. Wow. So the, the, the son was like uh, sweeping. The, the grandmother was like wiping dust or something. And the father, I'm not going to remember what he was doing. But they were like all involved in this activity where the whole family was cleaning the entrance in the morning into the building, taking care of something as a family. Or the other day I walked into a tavern and you could like, it was empty but because it was still early. But it was like dad, big guy, you know, like <laughs> If you imagine a Greek restaurant owner or something, like big, fat guy, you know, that was him. Uh, so this guy, his son, also big, but grown up, and the mother, very tiny for some reason. But, uh, you know, they were like together sitting there as a family. So you could, you could sense a family business, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't seen stuff like that in Canada because Canada is, is very Americanized in that sense. And it's all very corporate-y. Right, everywhere you go, everything is polished and co yes, commercialized. Thank you. That's yeah. the word. It's it's yes. The streets are clean. Everything's nice, but it has no soul. It has no no identity. It has no values like the values we grew up with. You know, creativity, hard work, initiative. I don't see that in Canada. My kids are not being you know educated in school to take on challenges. Quite the opposite. The schools are afraid to upset the kids. Because God forbid the child goes back home and complains that it's hard. Yeah. I actually yeah. know a guy who owns a school back where I live in Ontario. And he's, he's Israeli. His wife is Russian. And she's a teacher in a seventh generation. So her grand-grand-grandparents were teachers back in the, in the Tsar Nikolai II revolution times. Okay? Crazy. Like way, way, way back. So as teachers, they're amazing. I mean, the, the things they come up with to teach kids how to think, how to critically problem solve, amazing. I'm taking my, my kids to that school. They also don't have any gender identity bullshit going on there either. But he complained to me that they're losing students. I said, why? You guys are doing an amazing job. And I can now you know, feel it, feel the difference between what I've seen my kids go through and what I'm seeing is happening here. And he said, well, because the kids are lazy. They're refusing to do homework. They're refusing to put in the work. They complain to the parents and the parents are lazy. So the parents come back and complain to the school that it's too much work and they take the kids. It's ridiculous yeah. that, isn't it? That's nuts, we, isn't it? We were talking about something last week, right? It happened somewhere in the UK. I don't know exactly what, the full story around it, but what it was is a child had gone into school and said that they identified as a cat, right? And this teacher had said, that's ridiculous. You're a person, Right. The teacher's getting in trouble for it. If the child identifies as a kid, it's like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it, I couldn't believe it. There was me. another was one as well. Yeah, I don't There was another one about a horse. Shit. I think the, a kid in a class was saying that they identified as a horse. And these two girls were just like, that's ridiculous. And the teacher was like filmed. The teacher was recorded, like screaming at the two kids that were saying it was ridiculous and giving them like a dressing down. Like, hey, that's, you know, that's homophobic and like transphobic that you can't say that. It's like the kids saying they're a horse, for God's sake. Like, they, yeah. Do you think, when do you call a psychologist at that point? <laughs> that's not, there's debates are getting friends. like, you know, didn't they growing up kids had imaginary friends they've got imaginations yeah. to do it but not they don't believe that they are that thing my brother wanted to be a gorilla until he was 16 or something and we're like yeah man you'll be a gorilla one day you're not yet though you're still a boy and it's like <laughs> it was like it's that's the same 
it's the same, it's, it, like you humor it, but they're not humoring it anymore. They're taking it too far. They're taking it serious. If we yeah. start talking about this, guys, we'll be here all day slagging off the world. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, well, so let me answer the question then. The biggest shock. So first off, they changed my last name. So my oh. actual last name is Heifetz. Um, and in English, it's spelled as K-H-E-I-F-E-T-S. Now, what they've done, they changed it to what spells as H-E-F-E-T-Z. So they changed it to Hefetz, basically mm-hmm. removing a few letters from my last name. They didn't ask me uh, or my parents, obviously, just decided that that's how it's going to sound. Now, what's interesting is that my brother, my older brother, immigrated to Israel three years before we did, before me and my my parents did on uh, through a different program through like a program that's specifically designed for young kids to come in and study in Israel. And uh, he was 18 at the time and he actually experienced the exact same thing. But then a couple of years later, he, he went back and he made them change the last name to add a couple of, uh, to add a, a letter I into the last name. Um, another culture shock is the alphabet. So two culture shocks there. One, it's right to left. So we write left to right, they write right to left, like Arabic. Now, the other uh, problem for me was the they don't have vowels. So in English, we've got A, O, U, I, etc., right? Um, And then we got the other letters, you know, harder letters. But in in Hebrew, just got the hard letters. And you kind of just have to know that that's what the word is. So, so in other words, uh, let's say, let's say, let's take the word, um, I don't know, remote, right? So remote. So remote in English is R-E-M-O-T-E, having E, O, and E. Um, uh, remote in Hebrew would have been written as R-M-T. But you have to know that it's remote. Huh. So... How? That's interesting. How do they teach? So that? what they so what they do is uh you know in the in the early stages of development they they put little dots so like uh, remote like they'll put like three dots like this under the letter signifying that you should say re you know and not raw instead of rem- yeah so but, but, though, but then it, it goes away have, it means they have to think on the feet they have to like it's problem solving included in the language so it's actually a good <laughs> yeah thing, don't you think yeah that's pretty cool it's like a puzzle yeah it's yeah like, it is like, it is you, you, yeah everything that you're doing is, is all based around a logic puzzle which is i think it's cool as shit when you first said it i thought what the fuck that don't make sense but when you think about it, it actually it teaches people to think in a way that most of us don't think unless you're a super mental gamer who's into all these crazy logic games and stuff like mm-hmm. that so it's probably a good thing that yeah, it is. It is a good thing. And for younger, uh, younger people, like I came to Israel when I was 12. So for me, uh, I eventually got along with the program and learned language. My parents still don't talk the language because they their brain refuses to accept the idea that there's no vowels. It's right to left. And they just said, oh, fuck it. You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. So uh, they never bother. But with that said, the language is actually quite easy because it's very phonetic. And, um, you know, for me, uh, it kind of seems... It's, it's as easy as Spanish, Italian, these languages, they're very, uh, you know, they sound really cool. So you get to remember the words because of the, the, the way the words sound. But if you want to write in a, in, a, in a literate, high-level Hebrew, it is extremely difficult to do. Um, another culture shock. 
there was no hierarchy or distance uh, between superior and and not not superior. So basically, I'll give an example. When I enlisted in the army, I could easily yell at my superior in the army. I could tell him to go fuck himself. Well, in this case, it was a woman, so I could tell her to go fuck herself. I could complain to her. I could uh, talk about my feelings, mm-hmm. right? Easy. That's allowed. There's no such thing as subordination in the sense that you got to keep your mouth shut. Everybody speaks out. And that was a big culture shock for me because since you're a kid in Ukraine, you're, you're being told to shut the fuck up on the spoken to. At the dinner table, when I was growing up in my family, when we were sitting down to have uh, you know, dinner, like I was supposed to keep my mouth shut. I wasn't you know, I wasn't supposed to talk. Now, today, my family, you know, it's a very, uh, very much modern family in many ways. So now it's like I encourage my children to talk and to tell me about their day. But back then, you know, you, you shut up and you don't talk unless you're, you know, you're spoken to. So in Israel, that doesn't exist. Um, the kids kind of rule the world because the kids can do whatever the fuck they want. Another culture shock for me was when I went to school is that nobody does homework. Nobody does homework and teachers barely give you any homework because of that. I was like, what? You guys don't do homework? How does that work? Because back in Ukraine, we had two notebooks. One was a class notebook and one was a homework notebook that you always had to bring in to the teacher so the teacher can check if you did your homework. That was a big part of the education. Um, What else? The language. I mean, it was hard for me to learn the language. I don't know why. Um, I didn't, I took my time with it. it, took me way longer than most kids. Um, also, I was, when I spoke, I spoke with an accent. So that didn't give me any points with other kids. I, I got bullied quite a lot because of that, because I was fat, because I was insecure. And, you know, Israeli kids can really smell it. Israeli kids can really smell insecurity in a, in a mean way. And they have, uh, they have no, they have no breaks. You know, it's funny. One time I remember... Um, our teacher was yelling at us and for some reason he was actually uh, he was yelling at these two Israeli kids okay who just had a fight and so they had a fight and one of them had a black eye the other one had his his t-shirt kind of torn you know and and he's like why can't you guys fight like these Russian kids he actually said that you know (laughs) the Russian kids they fight and they don't have anything like Two Russian kids can go head to head, kick each other's ass, and there will be no black eyes, no scratches. The clothes would be intact because for some reason, the mentality in a, in a Russian or Ukrainian or a Kazakhstan family is to preserve clothes, is to preserve the stuff you have because we didn't have a lot of stuff growing up. If somebody wanted to buy a car that you had to save up for a car for like five years as a family, you know, and then you had to borrow some money from the neighbors too. Uh, so we, we we cherish the stuff we had. Like if we had a cassette player, we had a cassette player for ten years. If we had a you know a TV, that TV was passed down in generations. Like it, nothing would would end up being thrown out. If something broke, you fix it. You never throw it out and get a new one. No such thing. Um, and, and and so even when we fought each other, we knew. Clothes have to stay intact because we get in trouble if not, right? We can't have any, any you know, black eyes going on. Why? Because we get in trouble with the parents otherwise. 
So it was very different experience. So when I came to Israel, nobody valued stuff. Nobody tried to preserve anything. There was actually a big thing in um, around the, the Passover. People tend to throw out electronics because they get either bored with them or they buy new stuff. So they just throw it out. So you could go around the neighborhood and you can see people throwing out TVs, you know, uh, bikes, toasters. I mean, all kinds of stuff. So my dad, he was like, at first, he was like, what? He literally passes that, passes like a dumpster and he's like, he's a big TV. He took it. Yeah, like, I'm I was going to say, he takes that. <laughs> <laughs> he took it, he called a buddy of his who understood TVs. So apparently there was like a couple of, uh, uh, I don't know, microchips burned or something. So specifically for that, he got on a bus, he went to a different town, into the electronics store, got the two microchips, came back. Basically, we had a TV from the dumpster. And uh, my dad was very proud of that, very proud yeah. of that. Then he made it the habit to scan the dumpsters once a week, you know, just in case. And he kept on bringing like different stuff like microwaves. And uh, one time he brought like uh, like a bike, you know, like one of these, uh, you know, the kind of bike that you put in the gym. And you just, oh, right. Yeah. Exercise bike. Yeah. Okay. Exercise bike. Yeah. So he brought it. I mean, it was older, but it was in good shape. It was really heavy. So we had to carry it upstairs and, you know, we, we had an exercise bike. It was it was really interesting. Uh, all of our furniture in Israel was a hand-me-down furniture. We would either take it from the neighbors who were upgrading or you would find it at the dumpster. We would like go for like a flea market or something and find something there. Um, it was a very, very interesting life um, that I really, really hated, to be honest with you. Because, uh, <laughs> because even then, I, I understood that, look, this is no way to live, you know, looking for furniture and dumpsters, no way to live. So, but Seems that was like a life good deal. of an immigrant. Yeah, that was life of an immigrant because about six months after we moved, um, my dad went to see a doctor and he was uh, diagnosed with diabetes uh, and then uh, also had some kind of a heart issue. He went for a checkup and they told him immediately, you have to go to the ER. Now we could call you an ambulance and you have to pay $250 or uh, you could you know, jump on a bus and get it, go there yourself. So he went there, he admit, immediately got admitted. And I think it was two days later, he went into a double bypass. Double bypass is when they uh, take out a, like a vein out of your leg and replace a vein in this area here. Oh, because shit. one of the veins he had was so thin that it was just about to burst. Like it was really close to bursting. And if it did burst, um, I don't think he would have uh, made it. So he went into a double bypass free, by the way. And uh, this is one of the strongest, I think, benefits of Israel. And, and that is the, the healthcare system. Amazing, amazing healthcare system. And um, from that point forward, he really couldn't find a job, couldn't hold on to a job he, he would find, which is mostly security, where he would just sit on the chair, you know. But these companies that would hire people like him for security jobs, they, they set it up front. You know, they said, look, we're hiring you, but you can only work for eight months because the law dictates that if somebody works for nine months or longer, uh, we have to give them seniority, increase their pay and pay them insurance. And we're not going to do that. So every eight months, he would get fired. He would wait for three months or try to find like odd jobs here and there. And then he would get rehired again into the same agency. Ruthless, aren't they? Wow. Yeah, that's 
fucking but businesses are ruthless aren't they you're a number especially the bigger the company the more you're just a number yeah totally um so yeah now you are more uh sort of able to move around and and do and work from anywhere which i think is one of the biggest um one of the biggest points of attraction towards this kind of lifestyle and getting into this kind of um digital economy and the like uh if you could work from anywhere where would you where would you like to work where is your ideal country um to work from that is a great question um yes it, it it's it's a great privilege to be able to choose where to work uh to be able to choose when to work to be able to choose uh to switch location switch environment very you know sporadically like i tend to get bored with the with my surroundings very quickly i'm the sort of guy who likes variety in my life and i tend to try to get it anywhere that i can so obviously there are quite a few areas where i can't get variety for example my marriage you know i'm gonna go around you know getting variety in marriage. But, uh, <laughs> when it comes to working spaces i tend to switch them up as much as i can um that's why by the way I work a lot from coffee shops as much as I can. Whenever I don't have like any webinars or maybe recordings like this, I, you know, I do try to work in in like these loud places where I can get lost in the crowd, so to speak. Kind of like the the ultimate dream of every writer, where they would be writing out of a Starbucks in Manila, whatever. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Asian part of the world. I've never been, but I also don't want to go there for some reason. Uh, so uh, Philippine, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, all these countries are not for me. Um, Europe is a really cool place. I really like Europe. Um, I haven't been to Ukraine since leaving. And probably uh, I was going to ask you about that. It's yeah, I'm not, not probably not going to go there anymore. I, I'll tell you what. Let's start with the places where I wouldn't want to work anymore. So that's Canada. That's the U.S. Uh, these are the places where I don't want to work. Uh, I've been in the last six months. I've been to Puerto Rico. I didn't okay. like it there. It was extremely hot, humid, and uh, for some reason, you pay for everything in U.S. dollars. Apparently, because it's one of the, it's considered a U.S. territory, and they're part of the U.S. banking system. But it's unjustifiably expensive. Uh, then Mexico. Mexico was nice. So we were in a five-star resort, all inclusive, and working there was amazing because. I could bribe the the employees with maybe a dollar or two, and they would like run errands for me all day long. I really enjoyed that. You know, I would be like sitting in the cafe at the resort, and I was like, "Hey, I want some ice cream." And the guy says, "We don't have ice cream here uh, in this restaurant, but we have it over there." You know, it was like fifteen minute walk because the resort is so big. I said, and I pull out a dollar and say, "Hey, do you mind grabbing me one?" It's like, "Sure, fifteen minutes." And he takes the dollar, he goes, and he gets me an ice cream, and yeah, so that was kind of cool. I really like that, but I still wouldn't want to live in Mexico because it seemed like a very low-quality country, as in the economy is, is really bad. Um, the, the crime rate is pretty high. There's some things there that I just don't understand that I don't connect with. You know, um, I'll tell you where I enjoy being pretty much all the time. It's probably London. I'm going to be uh, traveling to London in a bit. Uh, next, this at the end of this week, where I'm going to be uh, meeting Mike as well, and uh, man, I I like the London vibe. I don't know why, but it's I just enjoy it so much. Yeah, London's I, I a bit of a... London. about eighteen months. I lived in London. Me and my brother, when my brother got signed for um, a record deal, um, 
and we moved to London and it was we lived in Notting Hill as well. They give him a flat right across the road from the studio, so we couldn't have afforded it. And I, I couldn't could afford it now, probably. <laughs> it was that book. But they gave him a flat across the road from the studio, Sam Studios in London, and we were back to back with what's called Portobello Road. Um, and he's got Portobello Market, and and literally you come out of your door, and it was just hustle and bustle every single day. There were people about on them, and it's still like even now in the digital era, there's loads of people setting up stalls, and it's just there's loads of different characters there. And and I tell you the the ones that stood out to me were the Jamaicans. There's so many cool Jamaicans in 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 London, and and the way they would dress, and they'd walk around smoking big joints, and they just wouldn't give a fuck. And it was just, <laughs> but it, it was it was. It was it was different, it, different than the rest of the UK, um, and everything's on your doorstep. We don't need a car. We didn't have a car in London. Yeah, ever. yeah. The, the public place. transport in London is is quite is quite amazing. I mean, uh, anytime the there, I use the City uh, Hopper app, and it, it basically tells you exactly what you need to do, like what bus to take to which tube station to go. Um, just mind blowing the system they've built. Uh, and and there were so many cities built after London, right? There was like, yeah. the, especially in the western part of the world, that's that's younger than than European part, and they still can't figure out the freaking metro. They still can't figure it out. Somehow in London they figured it out. The other thing I was really impressed with in London um, was I went to the post office museum. Have you guys been? No, post office museum. No, I didn't think I've been. So it's a museum of underground tunnels where they used to transfer the mail i think it was before the second world war and they could back then they could time the mail to the minute wow. to the minute it Even... was yeah amazing and what, 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 when was that was that like right back in that was like 1920s and they know, can't do that like now that. and they can't do that now <laughs> no no. that's crazy we have like a modernity bias don't we you see things now and we're like yeah it's just everything's so much better now but then you look at it and you're like wow these guys had it kind of figured out they knew what they were doing we moved yeah. to spain because no, they... spain's a holiday destination and you think you want to live on holiday and we went there and i think we would have stayed there i think my missus liked it more than me because obviously i'm the worker in the house and she, she kind of looks after the kids and does the family thing but i i i i liked it at first but coming back to the uk i was yeah, I was happy. We had to come to the south coast though, because up north, in Manchester and, and above, it just rains all the time. Scotland's fucking freezing. <laughs> no, I, I'm as you guys know. I don't know if you, uh, well, Mike definitely knows, but uh, I'm a Man United fan. So for me, the dream, the ultimate dream, is to live in London um, and to go and ride, take the train to see the games a couple times a week, maybe once a week, or maybe a couple times a month. But uh, London is definitely a destination. And even today, as I'm here in, in uh, the sort of the, the transition point between Eastern and Western Europe and, and Bulgaria um, and checking this place out, still the long-term plan is to set it up so I can't spend a lot of time in London just because it's such a, I don't know, I've been there for like, I don't know, maybe six times now or seven times. And every time I go, I stay there for a week or two. I just, I just can't help but love the place. You don't want to yeah. go what? You don't want to leave? No, I really don't. And I and I know there's this great saying: don't confuse uh, tourism with immigration. I'm pretty sure that as soon as you start living in London, the experience is a little bit different. Uh, but I don't know. I feel that we can pull it off because you know, Canadian, for example, Canadian cost of living uh, where I live in Toronto, okay, freaking off the charts. 
it makes people in California go like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. like whenever I talk to someone in California, we compare rent prices. They're like, there's no way you're paying that much rent. I was like, there is a way and I'm paying it. So <laughs> I think moving to London will not be a shock from a standpoint of cost of living. Uh, taxes are very much similar to the Canadian taxes, I'm sure, because it's the same, you know, uh, royal jurisdiction, so to speak, and mm-hmm. the English Commonwealth country. Um, but I just feel you get so much more for your money in London. And uh, you literally have access to everything. You, know, you don't the need best a car as well. Everything. And you don't yeah. need a car. Yeah. yeah. You just yeah. don't need a car. That was the one thing that shocked me because, like, I sold my business and everything. When he went to London, my brother wouldn't have gone on his own. So I sold my business, sold all my stuff. And I was like, right, I'm coming with you. Let's do it. And then I'll go with you. And I'll move with you. And I was kind of like his, his living um, mum, but obviously brother, dad type of thing. And I did his cooking and all his stuff. And he was at these parties and smoking drugs. It's a and dangerous game. <laughs> and yeah. Um, but that was the one thing that, that, that really surprised me. There's always something to do. 24 hours a day, you can just walk out your door and it's as, it's as if it's two in the afternoon. The only difference is it's dark or it's not dark, but there's mainly streetlights everywhere. And yeah, there was. you never needed a car. You never needed to... It, it's, it's just always on the go. It's, it's yeah. I don't know if I'd live there with kids. Yeah that's, yeah, that's the one thing that keeps me away from going to London is yeah, that like when I, I want to start a family and uh, like starting a family in London would be... I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it depends how big a place you live in, I suppose. Having a garden in London's expensive. Having a pool in London's even more expensive. And having an area for your kids. That, but if you if you find somewhere around, there's a big fuck-off park that used to be fenced off. We weren't allowed in it, so I can't remember what it was called. But it was all around the area, and we, you could always get to the gates, but you wasn't allowed in. Um, I don't know what that park's called in London, but if you live near that and you've got access to the park with the kids, I guess it's like living anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I don't know. I'll, I I would be really excited to check it out as soon as I figure out what my next step from Canada would be. I know that it wouldn't be directly to London, and I have to set up in a in a low cost of living, low tax place first, and then go figure out you know the next step after that. But I don't mind the rain. I'll be honest with you. I really don't mind the rain. I don't mind the hustle and bustle. Um, as far as you know, space and me having to settle for smaller space. It might be a problem after Canada because Canada builds this way. You know, one of the biggest culture shocks for my kids when we came here and they, because they didn't really travel to Europe much uh, was they look at a shopping mall and they're like, whoa, it's so big. You know, so what they mean is it's so tall because, you know, here in Europe, they build this way, right? They build up because there's not, there's not enough space to go wide. In Canada and the States, I don't know if you guys been, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this, but they, the way they build shopping malls or anything else, they just build wide. Just build out. Yeah. yeah. Like it yeah. takes you a 10-minute drive in a car to go around a shopping mall area. Like just to circle. That's it. crazy. That is crazy. Uh, I mean, why? I mean, I understand there's a lot of space, but still it doesn't seem a very efficient way to build, you know. Yeah. Like yeah, I've, I remember- I've always lived in the countryside and uh, the first city I ever lived in was Hong Kong. And that was a massive culture shock for me because I, I remember getting off of the train and being like, oh, this is where I'm going to live. I'm like, how far up? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> like, obviously, you know, I'd seen, um, I'd seen skyscrapers before, but not like that, nothing like that. And living in one was just insane. Like the view you get every day, you're just like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in like some kind of rooftop restaurant or something back in the UK. But this thing's just, yes, yeah, so high up. It's a good job I wasn't afraid of heights. 
or I'd be freaking out every day. Um, yeah, uh, next question uh, I was going to ask was sort of about um, learning English. Obviously, you're, you're, you say in the book that you're not a native English speaker. You referred to your English as Borat English, which I loved. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, I'm definitely going to be telling my students that they're speaking Borat English when they're messing up. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I just thought, what, um, what was your process with, with learning English? Um, you obviously um, had to learn other languages before, so... Um, yeah. So, well, first it? off, I have to admit that I was learning English as a student from the first grade. I got lucky. Uh, I was going to the regional school number five in Ukraine. That was actually what it was called, the school number five. Kind of like Mambo number five, but minus the Jamaican and the girls and the music. So uh, we had one <laughs> class, one class that, uh, that had English. The other classes uh, had German. Because remember, we're coming off of the Soviet Union uh, falling apart. And back when Soviet Union used to exist, the eastern part of Europe was basically, you know, the East Germany, you know, so German and English and Russian were kind of tight uh, yeah. in that sense. So uh, lots of schools actually taught German. But I, I got into a class, maybe it was my parents' decision or, or, or whatnot, I don't know, but uh, we studied English. And so naturally, I wasn't great at it because... First and foremost, you're being taught English by a Soviet person who never been to the U.S., London, or any other places. So they teach you textbook Soviet English, which has nothing to do with actual English English. Um, but, but I knew the alphabet. I could read. I could write. Um, and so then we uh, moved to Israel. And in Israel, um, everybody speaks English. Uh, they speak broken English, Borat English, if you will, but no one really cares. Honestly, no one gives a fuck how they sound. They just get the point across. Like if you go in Tel Aviv and you stop a random, absolutely random person and you talk to them in English, they'll understand you perfectly. Seriously, it's not an exaggeration. It's a, Israel is just a very international country. So many, many kids spoke English. And, uh, you know, I was a part of the generation that got influenced by Western movies, by video games. Uh, I didn't read in English a lot, but I definitely watched lots of movies with no translation. And I um, played video games that also had no translation. Therefore, my vocabulary was pretty decent by the time I was 16. Now, when I got into actually wanting to make money with affiliate marketing and, and other methods that require content creation, you know, whether it's writing articles, writing emails, filming videos. I mean, there's still some YouTube videos you can find of me from like 15 years ago or 10 years ago where it's just funny to listen because, you know, it's, it's Borat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of them are so embarrassing. I took them off the internet they just, I just, because my friends kept sending me the links and laughing. <laughs> But, but I think it was through the practice, um, through writing a lot and reading a lot. I remember playing, we were playing football and I was, I don't know, maybe 16 or 17 and we we're playing football with this adult and um, he was also an English teacher and he told us that if you want to learn English, you need to write a lot in English and you need to read a lot in English. It was by, it was through these two, not watching movies, but rather actually engaging through reading and writing. And I think it was after I got involved in affiliate marketing, started writing articles, learning how to write copy. My English got better. 
Then I got together with a mentor who was originally from Manchester. His name is Ross Bowring, but uh, he, he lives in uh, Philadelphia. And um, he was the one to tell me that my English was still a board English because at the time I was kind of taking my Russian thoughts and translating them word for word into English. And that's how I was writing my copy too. So he taught me to become aware of that and start shifting the way I would structure my sentences, uh, work on my word choice, my sentence structure. Uh, and that, that was tremendous help. But then I think I made the biggest leap with my English when I got on the phone. Um, at one point, I succeeded and I had people ask me to teach them how to do what I do. So I started selling coaching. And that required a, a lot of time you know, spent on the phone, both to sell it as well as to teach so if you spend a lot of time speaking with Canadians, Americans, uh, and Europeans on the phone, and I would do at least five hours a day, um, you start picking up on stuff. You start, you know, I started listening to them. You know, I would ask a question and I would listen and I would try to mimic and model the way they spoke, almost like a parrot. And if they mentioned a phrase or statement that I really liked, I would write it down. And over the years, I got a lot better. Uh, a lot better. And then, you know, uh, it is through through practice, really. Um, and, but again, what's really important is you have to immerse yourself in the environment. Because mm -hmm. like my wife, for example, she, she also learned English in, in school, but she never really spoke it. She was a bit like a, she was like a dog. You know, she was basically, she could understand what you're saying. She couldn't, you know, reply back. That, that was her experience. Uh, but then we moved to Canada and two, three years into it, she's per communicating perfectly. Yes, she's got a thick Russian accent, as you would imagine, you know, anthropology and you know, stuff like that. But her vocabulary is decent. She can go and communicate in any government office. She can talk to our friends. And uh, why? Because she immersed herself in an environment that forces you to, to get along with the program. And uh, I think that's the key thing that might be missing for most people trying to learn English. Um, um abroad so like for example i got my brother my brother never really mastered english even though i got him private lessons and everything because he would go do the lesson he would try to communicate with the teacher for 30 40 45 minutes but then he would go home there was no consistent practice there was no uh, immersion and uh it didn't stick so what language do you think in now think not speak yeah now I actually do think in English. It's so you a bit think of, in English now? Yeah, it's a bit of a mix because the thing, the thing is about living in Canada is the kids speak English better than they speak Russian, even though we're maintaining and really trying really, really hard to, to have Russian as our first language in the family. So in the household, mm -hmm. we speak Russian as much as we can. Still, my daughter, fluent in English, less fluent in Russian. So she would walk up to me and she would, ask me a question in English when I'm trying to, to structure an answer. Like if she would ask me like a, like a challenging question, like daddy, what's sex or daddy, you know, how, how does, uh, where does uh, oil come from? You know, like I actually have to sit there and try to formulate it in English in a way that she can understand. So there's a lot of mental Aikido that I have to do. And as a result, yeah, uh, I think, I think I now think in English with a, in a rare occasion. And the way you would notice too is when I FaceTime with my parents from Israel, 
oftentimes I would be kind of lost for words. And I'd be like, mm. I would be mid-sentence. I'd be like, how do I say this? And then I would try and remember the word in Russian, you know? So, yeah, I think at this point my brain switched. That's so, cool. you're, so you're English now? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Although in London, in London, I think I'll, I'll be, I'll be sticking out because I'll, I'll have the American, Americanized accent and version of English. So they'll know I'm not, I'm not a local. Yeah. Well, I, they'll I know you're not local, but there's so many different accents going on in London. Like I, I don't recognize, I, I stick out when I go to London. So I took a load of the intros from my webinars and, um, I, I cut them all off and I, I, I ch ch shown them my missus and I said, which one do you think sounds the best, sounds the most professional? And she chose you out of about 10 different people. Um, and the worst <laughs> was Tony McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I don't know what he's fucking saying. <laughs> um, and she hears me talk to Tony on the phone all the time. So so that was funny. I think Dave Casser came second and he's, 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 in, he's Australian. So he's got a real oh, good he's voice. He's very well spoken. Yeah, very well spoken. Yeah, Dave Casa yeah. got set. She's like, but yours was chosen as the best. And I was like, fucking hell, man. He's not even fucking, he's not even, he's not a native English speaker. Um, <laughs> that was ages ago that I forgot. It just reminded me then when I was chatting about it. And I thought, oh, fucking hell, I forgot I'd done that. Um, yeah, Lorna chose you. But I think it's because you've got that American twang with yeah. the way that you do the well spokenness. It kind of just, it's perfect. Yeah, um, you know, um, I think uh, if, if any of you guys want to get a little bit more Americanized in the way you pronounce words, uh, one of the easiest ways, in my opinion, is to listen to some country music. Like, um, <laughs> if you look into my Spotify playlist, I got quite a few country playlists, you know, really like upbeat, rocky sort of style music, um, like Florida Georgia Line and Luke Bryan and things like that. So you listen and they and they really have this, uh, what do you call it? Um, a drawl. Southern drawl. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have that. Oh, I love it so much. Well, I like it in small doses. If they've got it, it's a person <laughs> that you meet. If you actually go to the like, like the, the uh, south of North America, it it starts to grate very, very, very quickly. It's like <laughs> you all sound fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I'm a big fan. I, I love never it. Learned. I like it, but yeah, I, I don't. I guess I can't, I can't say anything. My 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 voice is. <laughs> Most people have no idea what I'm saying. I'll talk for 10 minutes and they'll go, what? <laughs> I sometimes start speaking in a, in a sort of northern accent because of you, Mike, just randomly like yeah. in the office. So the girls are always just like, I think, I think we're going to train Callum to do my webinars. I think that's what we're going to do because I think we'd sell so much more. <laughs> uh, how right. many, how many accents or dialects there are in, uh, in England? Loads. Yeah. Uncountable amounts probably. But I, yeah. The, where we live in in Dorset, there's like an accent that's kind of like farmery kind of accent. It's yeah, the, why do it's you not the, sound like a farmer and everyone else does? I've just realised because my mum and my grandmother were um, secretaries, legal secretaries, so they were always speaking on the phone. So they had to learn um, phone manners, and they spoke. So they raised me in like with a telephone voice. So I ended up growing up with a telephone <laughs> voice. <laughs> well, telephone voice, brilliant. And, and then obviously teaching English when I was teaching English in Hong Kong and stuff, like they make you like pronounce, um, over pronounce words to like help the kids learn. 
um, there was a girl from Durham who was teaching at the same time as me, and uh, she was really struggling trying to pronounce these words because Geordies just yeah the Geordies. I mean, I yeah. found the Americans think we all sound the same. Like someone from Newcastle and Liverpool and Manchester and London, oh, you all sound the same. It's like I can completely hear the difference, but the Geordies when you get someone with a proper Geordie accent, um, I can't they, understand them a lot of the time. Yeah, sometimes especially when they're drunk. Like I used to live up in yeah. Newcastle for a long time, and as soon as they got drunk, like you're out on the piss with them, it's like I have no idea what you're saying. Like just let's just nod. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll be like that next week because we're with Tony in London, won't we? <clears throat> yeah, we'll be like that with Tony when, when Tony's had a beer next week in London. No one's gonna know what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome guy, but no idea what he says. Right, let's talk about email marketing because we've had you on for an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, I don't know how much longer we've got. Let's let's ask you some email marketing questions at last. <laughs> let's do it. Um, all right. So, what are some misconceptions about email marketing that you'd like to debunk? Well, the first one is that email is a channel to give value. I think it's not. I think email is a channel to send out offers because people actually, there's a reason why there's a Gmail promotions tab. I think Gmail understands that and uh, people actually go and check their promotions tab. Um, at one point, I was, I was a bit concerned about the promotions tab. I think it was two, two and a half years ago. And I said, you know what? We really need to get out of the promotions tab. And I hired somebody to create a code. There's actually a special code. It's not really a code, but they call it a code that gets you out of promotions tab. And um, um, when I got it and I started you know, getting higher open rates as a result, you know what I noticed? My sales did not increase. Hmm. I had more people open and read, but uh, my sales didn't go up. And so what I concluded is that people who actually want to buy stuff, they go and check the promotion step. Okay. Um, so you shouldn't be afraid of pitching and you should pitch every single day, which ties into the second misconception. Oftentimes people, they'll have an email list. So I know a company, uh, well, I know a guy who works for a company um, who's uh, got about a 1.2 million email list. 1.2 wow. million. Who's that? It's like um, a country. You know, him. it's uh, the folks over in Vancouver. Uh, you might have met them at the Gmail Mixer. His name is uh, Bilal. All right. And he's got yeah. 1.2 so million. million list. And uh, they don't email that list. So, what, what? I mean, how much must their all respond to cost? It must be like fucking two grand a month and they're not even emailing it. I, I don't know, but uh, I really, I gave Bilal, like, uh, I wrote him hard for that. I said, dude, you're sitting, you're sitting on millions of dollars if you utilize that. So they, they started getting their, you know, IPs and, and set up an order to, to start doing that. Because, I mean, think about it. You're sitting on a warm, instant traffic source of people who know you, who know what you stand for, and who are waiting for, for your next offer. As simple yeah. as that. And uh, the other misconception is I think it's not exactly tied into email marketing, although it's connected. And that is um, oftentimes people who get into the marketing business, right? Marketing anything uh, online or, or offline. They're afraid to, to, to make offers to people because they're, they think people don't like to be pitched. People love I, to I be think, pitched. Yeah, people love to be People love to buy. I think buying is a national pastime. Buying instantly makes you feel better about yourself as a person. It's something you do when you're bored. 
It's something, I mean, what do people do when they're bored? They go to a shopping mall. What do people do in a shopping mall? It's right there in the, in the name of it, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's such a tremendous, tremendous mistakes, uh, mistake that I, that I think people make. They get a list. They build a list. They don't mail it. If they do mail it, they don't pitch it. And so why, why, why are you building a list in the first place? So, Yeah, I've got nice. to admit, right, I don't earn the most money out of email, but I earn the most profit out of email, out of every part of my business. Because um, I was thinking about this when I started um, looking at this last week, I was thinking to myself, where, where, where do I make the most profit? And it's the email marketing side of things that I make the most profit. I have um, Lauren who writes my emails. I have the cost of my autoresponders. And most weeks will do in new business. Most weeks will do 10 to 20K minimum. And then we have loads of additional shit. And I'm terrible at email marketing. I'm getting better, but like no segmentation in my lists. No thing. We're slowly putting it all together and getting it right. But it's something that unfortunately it's so, so, so profitable. And people just don't. You'd rather go and spend fucking money on all this other shit that costs a fortune and doesn't generate. Like, like I think you give a great example in your book about the social media. Um, I'm not on social media anymore. I realized that, okay, it's great. I get to chat to my customers and I get to chat to people that I'm helping. But by 99% of the time spent on social media is a waste of fucking time. Complete waste. It is. It is. And if you take 5,000 social media followers and compared to having uh, 5,000 email followers or email subscribers, yep. you see that email subscribers will outperform the social media followers every time. There's numerous studies about that. You can look it up. Just Google, you know, email versus social media, and you'll find tons of articles. Uh, email dominates. I mean, when it comes to actual ROI on making offers and seeing sales, people who read your emails, they vote for you with a wallet. People who see your offers in social media, they vote for you or they, they support you with a like. Thumbs up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but so you, can't, you can't really put this in the bank. Um, and, and so there's even been a study done that I think I quoted in the book, uh, but if not, basically, they've, they've taken three groups of people. Uh, they, they broke them down by the first check of the day. They took the people who check their social media first thing, uh, first thing in the morning, people who check their email first thing in the morning, and people who check news sites first thing in the morning. And what they've discovered is that people who check email first thing in the morning are actually the most profitable customers that you can wish to have. People who check news sites first thing in the morning before email, before social media are the second best and social media uh, would, would come after them because people who check social media don't go there to buy stuff. They go there to escape. Mm. Social media is about branding, isn't it? Entertainment, really yeah. branding, but it's not as much to do. You can brand a business, and, and most people can't afford to brand a business. People don't understand. You don't need a brand until you're doing fucking 100 million. You just need to sell, 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 and just keep fucking selling. And I think that's where a lot of people make the mistake. As soon as they get like 50 customers or 100 customers, or they're making 50 grand a month, they think to themselves, you know what? I've got these customers. I'll look after these guys. And it's like, you're going to go out of business. You've got to focus on sales. And yeah, I guess email's the best. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, um, I think up until you're making a million a year, maybe even maybe even a million and a half, you really only need one solid communication channel, one solid lead generation channel, and one offer. Yep. You can get there with just one offer. So people do tend to spend so much time and effort and energy and, and finances on things that just don't matter. 
Who cares what CRM you're using? Who cares if your logo is twisted sideways? You know, you, it really doesn't matter. You can put an ugly ass business together with a good offer that the market wants and just keep hammering that message to the market. But of course, you have to choose the right market. I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. Uh, they go after markets that either are too small uh, or uh, don't, don't have any money or have money but aren't willing to spend the money on that particular thing. I was just, uh, we're just at a shopping mall yesterday. We were passing an area where they had like kids-related stuff. The first shop was like educational games. So games that kids can play to develop and stuff like that. This, the next shop was the video game shop with PlayStation 5 and all the video games and whatever. And the, the furthest one was Hippoland, which is just, just basic toy, uh, toy store, you know, with all the Legos and the dolls and everything. Guess, guess what store had no customers? <laughs> the, educa the educational Education game store. store. Yeah. There was this lady playing the educational games herself. The other stores were really busy with all the kids, especially now in summertime. Uh, so like you really have to give the market what it wants. And that's going to be the first prerequisite because you can build a big email list. Uh, but if you're really not offering them what they want, you're really not going to get far. And that's a lesson that I had to learn the hard way because I tried for about two or three years, I actually tried selling stuff that my market didn't want it. I, I thought I'm going to sell something that I don't see anyone else selling. And because that's what they need, that's what they need, but that's not what they want. Uh, yeah, that's not what they want. You're trying to build an industry that doesn't exist, and it's just so much more. I did it with Lead Simplify. Lead Simplify before I, I I built it, kind of that 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 business model never really existed. Everybody wasn't doing it the way Lead, and they still don't. Like we've got a few thousand subscribers who do it that way because it's so much better and so much easier. But for me to keep hammering that same message home to, to who it's kind of you've got to not just sell it to them. You have to first show them the problem. Then you have to show them the solution and then you have to convert them and, they, and there's effort involved. It's like there's a keyboard that's been created, which um, it makes it so that you can type like, I don't know, one and a half times as quick. But, but, but it's not common knowledge and people didn't learn on it growing up. So to get somebody to convert from this to using the other keyboard that's going to make you 50% more productive is almost impossible because there's a learning curve. So you have to figure out a way of transitioning people if you want to create a new industry. It's transition people from what they're doing now to doing something new without any effort. <laughs> without any key. effort. Yes. Yeah, I was watching uh, I was watching a YouTube video today. Um, someone was trying to, like, they were teaching how to sell. And they made a good point. So they were talking about a protein shake. And uh, they're like, well, most people who sell protein shakes, they're like, oh, it tastes like raspberry and it has uh, 25 grams of protein and it has only seven grams of sugar. He says, all this is bullshit. doesn't matter. The way you sell a protein shake, he says, it's like you put out a message and say, if you go into the gym and you're not drinking this shake, you're wasting your time. Don't, don't waste your time in the gym. You're not going to get any results or maybe you're going to get some results, but it's only if you drink this shake while going to the gym, you're going to be a beast. You're going to be a monster. Your muscles will grow a lot faster. Because, you know, and the point he's making really um, is that you have to sell the outcome that they want with, like you said, Mike, with the least, with the least effort. And we know this better than, than anyone. And you, I think you nailed it when you went into the software business because software has that ultimate appeal. Oh, I don't have to put in any effort. I just have the software. I click a few buttons and the software does the work. Well, I don't have, unfortunately, a software uh, that I own uh, that I could sell for now. But 
um, I see that every day because people come to me going through my coaching programs. They're asking me for software or they're asking me to do it for them or they're asking me to, uh, for my team to do it with them and to to help them kind of get rid of the learning curve because yes they want the outcome but they don't want to put in the effort because i mean we all know that to 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 lose weight and to be buff we have to stop eating sugar we have to wake up really early hit the gym spend three hours a day in the gym stay disciplined and devote our life to the gym this way we get buff we get the outcome but how many people do you know who are willing to be that disciplined over a course of time? I don't know too many. I'm definitely not one of them. Pizza's uh, just too nice. Yeah, that's a fact. You got to look at it that way. Yeah, with that, with that protein shake, I'd have a picture of a guy. It's like these two go to the gym together and one's a fat guy, one's a skinny guy ripped to bits like, Rah! and they'd be like, the only difference <laughs> is this guy drinks this. <laughs> I know that's the way to sell it. That's the old yeah. uh, the two men that the the two men uh, story from uh, what magazine was that? Was it the uh, Times? No, not the Times. Don't remember. Everybody's was... on it now, though, aren't they? I'm yeah, not yeah, sure. yeah. No, but it's but I think that's a brilliant way to present almost any idea. It's like that uh, old ad. You know, everyone laughed at me when I sat down at the piano and when I started playing. You know, that still works. Yeah, that still works. So even though the, the technique of, of showing, you know, two, two characters or two men, two women, whatever, and one getting the result and one not, that works. I have one of my webinars about traffic generation where I start off with, with showing a woman and saying, hey, this is Judy. Judy is a busy lawyer and she wanted to build an online business and she tried to do it with the social media, free traffic, writing articles. Oh, and this is Jane. Uh, Jane, she's a nurse, she's a parent, and you know she wanted to spend more time with the kids, and etc. So she did it, but she used paid traffic. And uh, six months later, they met at a conference, right? And so, the, uh, but the difference was, while both at that conference, one of them was in the audience trying to still learn how to generate traffic, and the other one was speaking from stage about how she built the ten thousand dollar a month business. Now, I mean, it's a it's a way to illustrate a point that the brain can actually understand because just making a straightforward claim uh, will always trigger that. Um, what's uh, the, so what or sales defense system. You're like, ah, yeah. you're full of shit. But when you tell a story that actually doesn't happen because the brain wired for story. And uh, this, this, I mean, I think that is a concept storytelling uh, when incorporated into every area of your business, including email, by the way, there's a whole school of thought and, 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 uh, in a philosophy for telling stories in, in, in your emails um, is so tremendously powerful because you can pitch all day long without seeming like you're an obnoxious salesperson. Russell Brunson does a really good job of that. Yeah. You never yeah. seem to do anything other than pitch. Everything he does is a pitch, but he always just seems to do it just right so that you don't feel like he's just pushing shit on me all the time. It's like, he's always got a story. He's always got a, and, and, and you've probably read his book, but his, his book explains how he does it and how he breaks it down. And it's like, it's really fucking smart. Um, it's, it's really fucking smart. Um, yeah. Um, the, the guy he worked with about yeah. storytelling, his name is Michael Haig. I actually tracked him down at some point for the podcast, but then I also invited him to, uh, uh, to mentor me for a bit and to help me kind of get my storytelling in order. So it's the same guy who helped uh, Will Smith with uh, uh, what's that movie about happiness? The 
Pursuit of Happiness? Pursuit, the of, pursuit happiness. of Happiness. And he also consulted the screenwriters on I, on, uh, I Am Legend. Wow. So he's an actual Michael Hollywood... Haig, I've got his book. I've, I think you've got it, Callum. Have you got my, my, the, my, the book I've got of Michael Hayes? Yeah. Um, it's, it's to do with story. It's to do with the, like, tw- I don't know if it's the 12 pillars okay. or it's the story it arc or it's something like that. It's, it's about the story arc. Okay. And... Yeah. So I, I Michael Hayes teaches that really, really well. And um, Russell Brunson's uh, thing, I actually uh, saw him deliver that live at Funnel Hacking. And then he turned it into a book, which is the way I think anyone should write a book. They should deliver it as a live presentation of the audience absolutely loves it. You turn it into a book. Um, so that, that story arc is, is, is quite incredible and it works. It just, there's a reason why the Hollywood as an industry is built on that arc. It yeah. just works. Every time I go watch a movie now, whether it's an animation movie with my kids or whether it's like a more, a more, uh, you know, an action thriller, whatever, like you can spot the arc every time and it just they keep going to it in the same way that we go to a successful webinar structure or to a successful sales letter structure successful email structure there's a reason why there's always these go-to formulas and um i think a great book okay it's not it's not the best book but a, a book that really helped me along the way was dan kennedy's ultimate sales letter because it was the first time well yeah, it's I. It, it's old. Yeah, it's old, but it's amazing because for the first time, someone actually said to me, "Look, writing copy has nothing to do with being creative. Writing copy that sells actually has to do with building blocks. And putting together your sales letter is yeah. like building a Lego tower. It starts with a headline, opener, problem, agitate, solution, guarantee, PS, bullet points, etc." And all of a sudden, I take, I, I, I see this abstract thing that we call a sales letter where magically the words are making me pull out my credit card and swipe it to be like, wow, I can be an architect yep. and I can structure these messages myself. And all of a sudden, you feel like you got the magic wand like Harry Potter and you can, you can just wave it and people send you money who never spoke to you, never saw you, don't know you from Adam but they want to give you money over the internet. And it's, yeah. it's also it's, because you can put a message way, together. You think in a specific order, don't you? And, and if you put the things in the right order to, to, to solve the problem that you're going to be thinking about next before you get to the next step, it just kind of, it just works. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is putting that. It's like a ladder. It's like when you're writing it out or you're creating it, it's like a ladder and you just stick it all on top of it. I've got that Dan Kennedy book as well. Because um, he did persuasive presentations as well. He did one called persuasive presentations. Michael Masterson did a really good one about uh, persuasive presentations as well. Um, they're fucking brilliant books. The best ones, yeah. Jason Fladlian's though. Yeah, Fladlian's. As far as webinars, yeah, I read it twice. Books. Yeah, I have I have it just notes from from Jason Fladlian's books. I was just copying entire pages and putting it into my Evernote so I could track back to them and read it out word for word at the webinar. It's like this. We, yeah, we could have priced it cheap, but we wanted to give the most value and give your result. I'm literally reading from the book. Look at this. <laughs> this is, I don't know if you can see it. This is from Jason Fladlian's webinar setup things. This is all the notes I've got in his stuff that's been put together through his training course. I believe I've got things in there as well somewhere. They must be all oh, the stuck on my walls. I even have his, look at that. That's his webinar sequence. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, you the got card, a little, 
a little <laughs> laminated card, and then on the back it's got Russell Brunson's A Epiphany Bridge script story, and it just sits there on front in front of my desk between my laptop and me uh, and my keyboard. I, I their stuff, I studied the shit out of it. I'm like a proper geek, like a real no, J- proper Jason's geek. Book is one of the few uh, manuals that you just want to keep on 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 the table next to you if you're into webinars or present presenting of any kind. Yeah, yeah you know you've made it when you've written a book like that. That's like clever as shit, man. He really is. The way it's the, it's not just that; it's the way he puts the words together and the way he he cl- closes people down about them feeling like they're being sold to. Like silly things about in some of the presentations. Thing he actually to say, oh, you should ask. Can I sell to them? Like question. Jason Flandin does it a million times better. Uh, but you'll have to read his book if you want to know how. Um, yeah. <laughs> next question: What is the most important piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in, in email marketing? Um, just like with anything else, I think the di- most difficult part is starting. Um, and the writers know that more than anything, more than anyone else, where, you know, in any, at any time, every single day, the hardest part of writing, for example, an email is the, is starting to write, uh, as soon as you start it and it just flows. Now, uh, what I would say, don't worry about product. Don't worry about the right software. Don't worry about like getting it all right. Just get going and start mailing your list. Even if you only have one or two people on the list, get in the habit of actually mailing. Um, I see way more people build the list and not mail the list than you know people who, who don't have a list and actually can, can mail something. So I think ju- just the, the mere development of that skill set of, of, of writing emails to your list that alone can be tremendous because even if you don't do it for yourself, I don't know if you know this, but there's a huge opportunity now to become someone else's email manager. So kind of like there's a social media marketing manager as a position with companies. Now there's an email marketing manager position that you can score plus that position because it's so based on the amount of money you're actually producing with email. That position also gives royalties. So it's kind of like being a, a top paid copywriter, but without having to go through years and years and years and years of being an apprentice in some kind of an advertising agency, you can literally just get going and build yourself a multiple five figure income by mailing other people's lists. So that is a skill. Do you still write your own emails? Uh, Not all of them. So I do have a full-time email guy. Uh, His name is Greg. And uh, yeah, so it frees me up to do other stuff that are, that is like business building versus being in the business. Yeah. But here's what I'll tell you about writing emails. I miss it. I miss it very much. Anytime I can, I, I do write it. And uh, I th- one of the reasons is first off, because I got into the habit over the years. So it became mm-hmm. a habit. I would literally write as soon as I wake up, I would just put in that first hour, hour and a half. But in addition, it's almost like therapy. I know if you ever noticed that. I know if you don't. I don't know if you journal. I know if you, uh, you know, email every single day. But I noticed that every time that I would sit down to write an email to my list, it I felt way better after I finished. It's like I I I, I got it off my chest or something or whatever. When when I produce something, when I let my creativity flow, I feel better. I feel calmer. I feel more in sync with who I am. How do you? check his emails do you check them or don't you check them or how do you structure what he writes i'm asking this for personal reasons because obviously i've got same as you a full-time email writer um and she does all my emails but i don't police them as much i kind of i like what she writes and i like what they think but i I think 
maybe if I knew how to structure that or control how she does it more to my style, it might might not, but it might convert better. Well, I actually don't police him as much as uh, you know. I think I should be, um, but that's because I'm a terrible manager for no other reason. I'm just a terrible, terrible manager. And I either micromanage somebody and make them want to, you know, shoot themselves and shoot me um, and leave, or I don't bother them. And I just look at the results. So with my guy, I look at the results. And okay. if he can get results, 80% of what I would have gotten if I wrote the emails, I'm happy. 80, 20. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds sounds about right. Sorry, guys. I, should, I don't know if you heard my phone. Then it started ringing. My missus was... Um, What's the biggest challenge you faced on your journey so far and how did you handle it? The biggest challenge. So at one point, I had a 100,000 person email list hosted with Aweber. Um, and then one day, uh, it got shut down. The account got shut down. No prior notice, nothing. 100,000 active email subscribers. This email list was making me at the time a minimum of $3,000 anytime I would send out an email. I mean, I could have, I could have mailed a, I could have wiped my ass on a piece of paper and mailed it and I would still have made money because of just how big the email list was. Yeah. Um, but then, gone. Fuck. Wow. That, that, was, that was a big, so at that moment, I called Aweber, I tried talking to their compliance department, nothing was helping. That Josh from Aweber, asshole guy, you know, he just made the decision and that was it. Um, so what, I cried a little fucking teenager who don't know shit about shit. who sat working in an office on minimum I wage. Like, I'm I, I don't think he's a teenager, now. but, uh, he's still there. He's still there. Oh. Um, well, wh whatever the case may be. Yeah. I, I was, I was really, really terrified, anxious, scared. I sat down on the kitchen floor. I, uh, I mean, I cried a little bit. I'll be honest with you. Uh, um, then I went out for a run. And I ran for about seven kilometers, which was the most I've ever run in one, in one session at the time. And uh, then I came back. And for the next three days, uh, I basically tried to find a different email software and uh, salvage what I had. Now, unfortunately, I had a backup of my list of only 40,000 people that I made a few months before. I didn't back up my list. So lesson, one of the lessons from this experience is always back up your list at least once a week. Uh, so I took what I had and I eventually got with an Israeli email marketing provider, email service provider. And they actually delivered way better than Aweber. And I was back on track within about three weeks. I, uh, wow. you know, I was delivering better. I redid my follow-up sequences. It just, you know, I just clicked really well. And then again, I grew up, I grew the list so much that at some point they asked me to leave, but they didn't ban me. It was uh, New Year's uh, 2018 or 2019. And they, and they literally just said, uh, hey, look, anytime you email, we, it causes, because your list is so big, it causes a temporary block for our IPs with, uh, I think with Yahoo service servers. But the problem is that in Israel, the primary email provider is walla.co.il, and it actually uses the same servers as Yahoo, which means as soon as I email my list for the next several hours, most of their customers, Israeli customers, can't get their emails out. 
So they said, hey, we, uh, we have to ask you to leave. And I said, okay, okay, just don't turn me off. Give me 72 hours. They said, yeah, not a problem. Just don't broadcast. I said, will my email follow-up still run? It's like, yeah, the email follow-ups will still run, but don't broadcast your big-ass list because it just tanks the server. I said, okay, and I went looking for a different uh, company, and I found it. I re-imported my list, and uh, I turned off that account, continued on this one, and uh, you know that was the experience. I mean, the thing about email marketing that I think many people don't realize as opposed to social media is that you actually control your audience. With email marketing, when they opt into your list, and I hope that we're only talking about opt-in email marketing here. I think it, it's worth mentioning. You know, we're not talking about like just scraping lists off the internet or, or buying lists because I don't think that's legal in Europe at this point. Uh, in the U.S., it's still legal. In the U.S., you can just randomly grab emails from the internet and start mailing people because it's an opt-out jurisdiction. So people have to tell you specifically, don't email me anymore and for you to stop. Um, in Europe, that's the other way around where they have to give you permission first and then you can email them. So um, with email, you control the asset. You control the email address and you own it, so to speak. You Not it, but the permission to mail. So with social media, you don't. So if with email marketing, you lose your email service provider account. You can re-import your list into a different service and continue as if nothing happened. With social media, if they take away your Facebook fan page or if they shut down your YouTube channel, guess what? You're fucked. There's nothing so you can do. If I moved from, like, I don't use Aweber. I, they did the same thing to me there where they froze me account and I was like, what the fuck? I've got a launch going live. I had a launch going and I was like so pissed off. Um, I moved over to get response, but I kind of have, I have about six lists, right? But the two main ones that I use the most is Active Campaign and Get Response. And what I do is um, I kind of use Zapier to make sure that both the lists really yeah, 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 yeah. the same. Is that is that kind of the same strategy that you use? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, now I have a, a mirror list hosted with ActiveCampaign where uh, all my sequences, all of my subscribers are get added there as well. And uh, it's not like activated. It's just sitting there, but it's mirrors everything that we got going on so this way in case we lose this account we can switch yeah okay yeah that's kind of what we do we get like we get worse deliverability rates and shit on our active campaign one but that's probably because we hardly use it as much well you mentioned you don't use uh you don't do much segmentation nope uh once you do segmentation you will see an increase in your uh response rates as well that's kind of what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is getting everything. But I mean, I'm, I'm rebuilding new lists as well from the start. I'm going to start focusing specifically on the target niche that I want to go after rather than. Um, what, what you want to do, especially with things like Active Campaign, you want to tag people who open. You want to have a list of recent openers and you want to send those more emails because that way your domain will continue acquiring uh, signals. Because the way now the way email service providers look at look at who we are as marketers who email, they look at our domain and see how many positive signals it receives. And a signal could be something like click on the link, uh, somebody uh, opening the email, somebody scrolling through an email as well. Like if you write a really long email and people only read one third of it on average, that's actually a bad signal. So would you put the link at the bottom of an email or, or do you still always have a link at the top? I also, I now include one link at the top, you know, hidden somewhere in the upper copy, but also in the middle, but also in the end. So I try to sprinkle it everywhere, depending on how long the email is. And, you know, 
we try to like mix and match. Sometimes so, we'll send a really short email, like a really, they, really short email. If they don't read the whole thing, but they click on the link at the top, that's still a positive signal though, isn't oh, it? Oh, that's a very, yeah, as they opened and they click the link. That's very positive. Right. Okay. Yeah. But there's some people who send out content only emails, right? So they need an open and they need that scroll as well. They, they you know, time spent reading email and all these metrics are being tracked, unfortunately, by companies like Gmail. So, but, you know, the, one of the key metrics is, of course, open and click. And if you can, um, if you can really hammer home the openers, that's tremendous. Meaning whoever's opening, keep mailing them more. Like if you email once a day, send an extra email to the openers. If you're emailing once a week, send two extra emails that week to the ones who opened, especially if they opened but did not click. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's right, cool. I'm going to... We've had you on ages. I don't want to keep you on too long. So I'm pro I'm pro I don't know if I'm going to skip a few of these thingy questions yeah. and get to some of the fire questions where you can answer quickly. Yeah, go so ahead. Gonna keep I, you on I was going to say hours. the same thing. Yeah, because um, so I was going to do that. Right. I'm going to I'm going to ask you the why question. It's called the why debate. So we've got the questions ending in why, which will be able to answer quick. Attention is the new oil, gas, gold. It's the most valuable resource in the new economy. Why? This is from your book, obviously. Because everybody wants to get a message out and the louder your message, the bigger your audience, the more influence and respect you're commanding. And so it's basically the way you make money. You know, you command an audience, an idea, and uh, if you have reach, people want to work with you. Nice. Question number uh, two. Yeah. Build a list build of a people. Oh. Go on then. I you was going to say build. Go on, read it. Okay, build a list of people who like and trust you in an inch-wide, mile-deep niche. Why? Because these people will continue following you and buying your next thing, your next thing, your next thing. And so anytime you launch a new project or a new product, it will be an instant and guaranteed success. You really only need, there's this uh, essay, 1,000 true fans or 100 true fans. Go read that. It explains perfectly why, why, why this is true. 1,000 true fans. Okay. Yeah, right, I, just let me down. put that in thinking before I move on. 1,000 true fans because we were... Uh, okay, I've got that. Um, it is actually is... I think it was 100 looking at that. Top 100 movies came up. Okay, I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Uh, great offer and hungry market. Why? Because if you've got something amazing, but people don't want it, you can't convince them to want it. You have to only go for what people already want, because then you just have to show it to them and they will buy it. It goes back to the old Gary Helbert letter when he uh, gave an example of having a, uh, a hamburger stand. You know, and he said, I'll give you, if you're competing with me, I'll give you every advantage. You'll have the better meat, uh, the secret sauce. A better location. I just want one thing, and that's a hungry. I would just a bunch of people who are hungry and want to eat right now, and I'll have a crappy burger, and I'll still make a ton of money. Yeah, because starving crowd, he calls it, doesn't he? In the in the in the quote, he's starving crowd. Um, Love it. Don't take rejections. Uh, Go on, I'll let you do that one. I, I thought we were going one for one, and now okay, you're all over. One, one you're off. Just, just, just do it. Let's let's not let's not have a dispute. Let's just. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> don't take rejections personally why this is a tricky one because oftentimes when you pitch someone and they say no you want to take it personally it's like they say they're saying no to you uh, but in reality 
timing might not be perfect. They might have not understood the product correctly. Uh, my, the money might be tight right now. Uh, they just got a lot going on and they just can't focus on your offer right now. This is why I love email because their rejection doesn't hurt you. If you email your list of 10,000 people and, uh, and you know, 9,782 of them did not buy your offer, you're actually not thinking about them. You're thinking about the other 200 who did and you're celebrating, you're dancing next to your laptop. It just feels so much better. So, and then you make the next offer the next day and some, someone else picks it up. So uh, a common experience for a list owner is for someone to be on your list for two years and only then buy from you for the first time. And that's normal too. So just don't take rejection personally. Love it. Nice. Yeah, that was great. Free traffic equals time. This is also, these are all from your book. Free traffic equals time. Paid traffic equals money. Which do you value more and why? I value more, obviously, time because it's the only uh, non-replenishable resource we have. Money can, will be replenished every time. Even the poor people replenish their money every month by working a job and getting paid. So anytime I can uh, buy back my time through the investment of money, I will do that. Love it. Callum? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, why paid ads? Because work, I've worked my ass off trying to master free traffic techniques, uh, search engine optimization, content creation, social media content creation, which is a little bit different than SEO content creation. Um, it's, it's so much work. And eventually, chances are you look back at the amount of time and, and, and amount of hours you spent and effort you spent to achieve your outcome, whatever your outcome is, let's say it's measured by dollar value. So for me, I, I took a hard look at the amount of money I've, I've actually made over the course of a year or year and a half that I've tried to use free traffic. And I said, you know what, based on these numbers, if I divide the amount of money by the amount of hours, I got paid a fraction of what a McDonald's employee got paid in that same time. <laughs> So that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go and try paid traffic instead. And so that's what I've decided to do. So you can, and, and you can turn it on and off like a tap as well, can't you, with paid ads? Is something else I've noticed recently. Um, yeah, is it me? Yeah, that's right. Paid ads. Uh... We, we did it yesterday. We, we had a webinar yesterday and we um, had to do a pr promotion during the day. Um, and it's not me who does the ads. It's Dave Kasser, who's obviously fucking brilliant with ads. Uh, 270 something leads um, in one day in the legal profession to do with um, people looking at coming to Canada as, you know, when you fly into Canada and you're not supposed to be there, what are they called? Emigration. Illegal, Illegal immigrants. immigrants. Em immigration law and shit like that. It was to do with, it's fucking brilliant. I can't believe it. It's like $1 summer each as well. It's like, fucking hell. Anyway, my go, wow. sorry. Um, model what is already working, how and why? So the path to achievement is laden with uh, the people who went there first with, with arrows in their back. That's a quote from a butchered quote from Dan Kennedy, basically to say that anytime you're trying to be the first to do something, there's going to be a lots and lots of mistakes, lots of pain, lots of suffering until you achieve a result and you're not actually guaranteed the result. So if there were a bunch of people who made that way before you, who walked the path before you, then you better just model after them because then you're saving a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of trouble. And the way, the way you would do it is to 
Well, you'd have to pay for it. You'd have to find a mentor, somebody who is willing to teach you what they've done, hopefully with an actual track record with some results that they can show. And then, you know, that's how you would probably take the, the shortest path from, from starting point wherever you are to success. Awesome. Uh, opt in over sales page. Why? Because if you send traffic directly to a sales page, anyone who doesn't buy your product right away, you lost them. Sure, you can retarget them, but for every retargeting click, you're still going to pay. It's as if it's a, it's a brand new click. If you're taking people to an opt-in page first, what happens is they, they get on your list. They, do, they uh, uh, show you what's called a micro-commitment, which psychologically makes them a little bit more committed to you. And then they engage with your sales content. And if they don't buy, guess what? You can email them and remind them to buy. You can offer them a coupon. You can overcome an objection, send them a testimonial. You know, that's, that's like the details of the strategy. But, you know, you actually have them in your database. So let's take 100 people visiting your sales page. Let's assume you got a great sales page and five of them buy. Well, okay, five of them will buy, but 95 of them will disappear. But if you have an opt-in page and you got the sales page converting the same 5% and your opt-in page converts at, let's say, 50%, you send 100 people into the opt-in page. 50 will opt-in and see the sales page. Two, two and a half, well, let's say two, will purchase. But you also have 48 people you can now email and follow up with. And over the course of the next 7, 14, 21 days, you'll have way more than five people. But if you only had the sales page, you only have your five customers, and that's it. Then you have to start from scratch. Now, imagine doing this over a course of a year, two years, three years, five years, and you're driving people to your pages every day. We're talking thousands of people that are in your lead database that you can re-engage with for free and build a relationship with, which means they're not cold traffic anymore. They're actually warm, and they're available to you at the push of a button. You can just sit down, write an email, hit send. And if you're so lazy that you don't want to write your own email, you can use ChatGPT to write a damn email and still hit the send button. You couldn't have said that any better if you'd have scripted that fucking answer. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Sold. I'm an email marketer. <laughs> fucking love it. Opting pages on everything, by the way. <laughs> love that. Um, one more, two more questions. Yeah, this is like a, one of our sort of wrap-up final ones I thought I should ask you. Considering we talk about books all the time, we read a lot of books at the moment, and we're trying to get our listeners to... to you know, read a bit more and build a reading habit. Uh, I was wondering, what are you reading right now? Sure. Let me pull out my Kindle. So first thing I want to say, I read mostly through Kindle. Uh, uh, and since the discovery of Kindle, I mean, it was life-changing for me because I used to live in Israel at the time. And, and every book to get from Amazon, the book would cost me 20 bucks and the shipping would cost about the same. So every book would actually cost me more than like a course or and I would also have to wait for three weeks to get it. So, okay. you know, Kindle was, was life-changing. So some of the books that I've read recently or am reading right now, because I tend to start and then switch to a different book and come back. So I'm not, not great at sticking to one book. Uh, one of them is The Secret World of Stem Cell Therapy, because I've been looking deeper into that uh, for my, I have back issues. I've got like hip trouble that, you know, some ligaments here that won't heal. So I'm really researching what what I can do with this sort of uh, regenerative medicine because Tony Robbins talks about it and Joe Rogan talks about it and a lot of people talk about it's it. It's huge, isn't it, at the moment? Stem cells. Yeah, so uh, looking into that. 
The other one that I'm just starting is called the Super Connector. And um, I'm doing that because I've been doing a lot of joint ventures in the past year, year and a half. So I really want to deeper, deepen my understanding of what, of what that is like, what, you know, what other things I can pick up on. Um, the, the one I read recently, which I absolutely loved was the, the business almanac of, uh, Raval, the almanac of awesome. Naval Ravikant. Yes. Wow. What a smart fucking guy. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing guy. Uh, recommend everything by him. There's also another book that I would recommend. It's called the courage to be disliked. I, I would recommend oh, okay. it to you, Mike, because you're a parent. I think it will be. I thought you were going to say because I'm a prick. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's actually it has nothing to do with. Um, with, with... <laughs> it, no, it has nothing to do with like how do you talk to people or anything. Yeah, the, the title is a bit misleading, but uh, let me let me assure you, it's a it's a really worthy book for you to read. Um, another book that I recently read. Uh, what is it? Go for Stupid by Steve Sims, um, which is a bit of a rehash of his previous book called uh, The Blue Fishing. But it's basically, it's basically about going for big, meaning that when you aim for something big, oftentimes you not only achieve it, but it's also easier to achieve than, than working hard for a small outcome. And I think that's really important because for me, one of the things that I've always thought of myself um, over the years, like one of the things I've always like hated about myself and, and would always like beat myself up for is playing a small game. That book is, is, is really cool about expanding your horizon about what you, you know, what's possible for you because other people have achieved it. And we're talking some really extravagant things and not, not in the sense that, oh, it's about achieving in business or become a billionaire. Not, not that. It's more about in your personal life in your dreams like let's say What's the title of this one again go for stupid so Sorry, I'm, I'm getting them all on amazon that's all i'm doing <laughs> so uh i'll give you an example a couple of years back um after reading this author's first book blue fishing i uh, i was going to a birthday party for my best friend and i knew he was a probably the biggest Lionel messi fan and barcelona fan ever so after it was immediately after reading this book. So what I've done is I said, I wonder if we can pull off meeting Lionel Messi in person. And we did. No way. You did. Yes. It cost me $36,000 that I had to donate to a charity. But, and, and it also uh, cost me a year and a half of wait time. But eventually in April, we flew out to Barcelona, me and my friend. We waited for four days for, uh, for them to give us the green light. They picked us up. Uh, we went to the Barcelona training ground, and we waited for them to finish their training session before, uh, before I think, later that night they had a, a game of some kind. And then uh, we met Lionel Messi. It wasn't anything impressive, just so you don't think. It was We met him in the parking lot for nice. two minutes. <laughs> but, but we both have a selfie with Lionel Messi, and, um, you know, we got to experience him live and in person, which was the most terrible experience. How did I've you do had. it? And did you pay for it? I paid for it. Yeah. Like I said, I paid 36 grand. Uh, it went to wow. a charity and uh, it didn't go. It actually did not go to Lionel Messi. <laughs> which yeah, but he's only getting out of his car yeah, and going in the building. Yeah, like... yeah, yeah. 
but, he probably earns thirty six k in like two minutes. We got we got a bit of a bonus because while we were waiting for him to come out, we ended up meeting a bunch of other Barcelona players and so taking selfies with them. We met Gerard Piquet, uh, Ivan Rakitic when he was still pro- playing for them, Dembele, Vidal, uh, Alba, uh, Ter Stegen. Nice. We, we met a bunch of people. Yeah, so, that's some yeah, legends. That was pretty cool. But that so just shows you that you can you can actually go for a big thing that most people will never do. They they think really small because they've been taught to think small. And uh, this book is 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 a great you know expander of uh, horizons. I've, so to speak. I've just bought them all. They're on me Kindle already. <laughs> buy now, buy now, buy now. Um, looking forward to. It. Well, I've got one final thought. Um, final thought there was, and I added the why at the end. Final thought: build a list. In a targeted niche, pitch them every with every email and email them every day. That's a quote from the book, but why? Because you'll just make money. I, I think the reason people stay poor, even though they have access to all the information and the markets and the internet, is because they're just afraid to do this, to 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 pick an offer and to put it in front of people and 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 present it. And email is just a great way to present an offer to anyone in a non-intrusive way. Even if you get rejected, it doesn't matter. You can email again the next day because email is very forgiving. So if you hate selling face-to-face or over the phone, if you don't want to get on a webinar, fine. You can still do a lot with email, and you can even come up with a, with a fake name or a pen name if you don't want to reveal your own identity because I know a lot of people do it while still holding on to corporate jobs and such. So it's just uh, you'll just make money. It, it's, it's a great liberating experience, especially when you start making more money from this than at your day job. Yes, love awesome. it. Love, love that podcast has been awesome, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, am I okay sharing the link that you share regularly inside the book so that if people want to get in touch with you, want to contact you, want to thingy? So guys, on the screen right now, or if you're on the podcast, it's ego, I-G-O-R dot C-X forward slash tools. Um, that's the ego's, what's, what's the, is it ego's book dot, where they can get your book as well? Yeah, ego's book.com egosbook.com you can go and get his book i would definitely recommend it it is a super inspirational book um i've got five email marketing books turning up today because i've decided to massively kick myself up the ass and start implementing more um structured email marketing into my business and it's all thanks to ego's book which is it's it's fucking brilliant go and get it egosbook.com or go to ego.cx forward slash tools and find all loads of free training and stuff like that don't you actually give them a free email sequence from that or is that just for when you get it at egosbook.com you get a bunch of freebies including a couple of webinar trainings on traffic and stuff like that you also get some of my uh, email templates uh, capture page templates so just like a, a bunch of a bunch of bonuses so we're in a digital awesome. world you've never created software you've managed to make millions without creating software doing what you teach on this page so guys get the fuck over there and grab it because it's gold and Igor, i thank you very very much for coming on everybody else we will see you next week again on the wider bait cheers very much all right Bye-bye. Cheers. see you then bye